Hello and welcome to Shades and Layers with Kukonos Kusana Ricci. This is one of the other bonus episodes that I promised you at the end of season two. My guest today is Taryn Gill, South African entrepreneur and founder of hair care brands such as The Perfect Hair, Curls and Bloom, Super Curl and Soft Sister. Taryn's story is a true masterclass on how to manage your career, spot opportunities and use your experiences for business success. She has worked for some of the greatest names in South African publishing and media. She's also an alumna of the business reality show Shark Tank and the high priestess of a community built around her first brand, The Perfect Hair. And I know she's going to kill me for saying that, but seriously, her marketing savvy is phenomenal. And you will find out why that is during our conversation. We caught up at a time when South Africa was starting to reckon with the riots that shook the country after former President Jacob Zuma was arrested. The country was also in the middle of yet another hard COVID lockdown, and there are references to that in our conversation. Mind you, while all of this was going on, she's in the middle of negotiations and finalizing partnerships that will bring changes to her brand, The Perfect Hair. And she was also hosting Taryn's Table Talk, a series of important conversations about natural hair under the auspices of her new brand, Curls by Taryn. So let's get into it, starting with what led to the changes that are coming to The Perfect Hair. I've evolved so much in the last year and a half with COVID. It's just been I've pivoted 180 degrees. It's like, in fact, it's more of a 360. I'm facing a completely different direction Mm. to what I was not even a year ago. Yeah. Okay. So what's changed in your operations? The Perfect Hair is is an entity that I've kind of sold the trademark on so that I can go out and do more brands like that. As founder of The Perfect Hair, we learned so much about not just building the brand, but but making sure that, that... we were designing curl care that was optimal, that was not just proudly South African, but something that was also really efficient and did exactly what it said it was going to do. And then mm. to be able to price it affordably for the average South African woman transitioning to natural curls was, was a challenge, you know. So all the lessons I learned as founder of The Perfect Hair, we've kind of extrapolated that. Um, so now I'm busy working on a on a new range called Curls by Bloom, which I'm very excited to say mm. will land very, very soon. Uh, Manufacturing is already underway. So it's so excited because it's finally happening. Wonderful. Um, yeah. And I'm cooking up a beautiful line of products um, for catalog. By catalog, I mean Avon. Um, for their catalog. And and that is something that we are, again, so excited to do something that has real potential to be traded on a global platform. So, you know, again, just taking the lessons I, I have learned and looking at the business more as a hub for designing and taking to market cold care brands um, that are natural, that are salon grade, that are ready for wholesale. So really looking at expanding what we were doing, you know, um, into just to be able to reach more people. Um, mm. and, and I think, you know, pivoting the business, it gives me the opportunity to keep designing and keep innovating and keep creating, which is um Difficult to do in these times, but at least I have the capacity to still be innovative and try new things. And I mean, I'm currently playing with a beautiful curl color range. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Curl color is 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 growing overseas, and and we'll see growth here too. Yeah, you know, people they want to get adventurous without damage. So 
there's all kinds of trends that we can look at and, and we can take advantage of. And, you know, so long as you've got the right partner behind you and you've got the right, if you can plug your brands into a really efficient uh, supply chain, then why not? Mm. You know? So when you say partner, is this an investor or, you know, how are you structured now? Pearls by Taryn is an entity that's entirely owned by my husband and I. I take to market my skill set now as a curl care designer. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm currently doing a range, another range, like I said, for the distributor. And I'm doing a range for Avon and I'm doing a range for another retailer. And I'm fascinated by township economics. I mean, I, I really am. So, so that's my next big challenge is to create something that can exist and thrive in township economies. Tell um, me more. Oh, I'm fascinated by township economies. I was a, I was the the head of marketing at the Sowetan newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, seven years was was my tenure at Sowetan, and such deep insight into you know how township economies operate, what the consumer is looking for, how agile is the consumer, how fast are they moving up the income ladder, what are the dynamics? You know, we learned so much in those days. It was the days when people loved to throw words around like. Young black diamonds. <laughs> yes, remember the. <laughs> I remember all of that. The black diamonds. Yes, the black diamonds. The era of the black diamonds, and and then of course there was that that word, the emerging yes, black diamonds. Yes, emerging. Oh. I kept saying, oh my god! I kept saying, where have they emerged from? Because they've been <laughs> <all> along. <laughs> but it was such an exciting time. I mean, it was crazy in terms of how awareness of this market had suddenly exploded and it was my job to teach and educate you know agencies about the the importance of of trusted black media in these township economies it was fascinating work and that's why i'd really love to go back into that space and create you know ultimately i always say to my children i want to leave a legacy behind of of household names i want at least one or two of the of the brands that I build to become something that everybody knows and trusts. And, and that's like a lifetime goal for me. You know? Yeah, it's your life's work, yeah. I love to build brands and I and I, I, I love to build what, what my friend Danao calls brands with fans. You know? <laughs> yeah, notice you've got quite a following, which is very loyal and very engaged uh, on social media. That they are. I must say, I don't have the biggest following. I've got competitors who are four times and five times and, you know, much bigger, uh, chunkier audiences. And, and mine isn't so much um, about the size, but more about the quality. I, I think I, I get a huge amount of user-generated feedback. It's so encouraging. I mean, you know, when you wake up and you've had a bad day or a meeting's gone wrong or you've lost a client or something didn't work in a formula and the product flops, um, you know, you always. I, I, I just sit there and I look at these amazing people buying my product and making videos and sending them to me. I mean, you imagine the time that woman has taken out of her schedule to do that. And I just, it's that type of connection with, with who I'm designing things for that, that really keeps us going, keeps us agile, keeps us passionate mm. because it's really, about her, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's really amazing. I did love seeing those, uh, you know, natural hair care day with mom and <laughs> all these uh, clients just coming back to you. I mean, you can tell it's user-generated stuff and it's really amazing. 
It is amazing. It it really is to to see, and I think that's where um, maybe this brand organically got it right in the start. Was um, we actually built the formulas, the pack designs, everything was kind of built based on a on on user generated feedback. So I would take a product into the market and say, "What do you think? How does it feel? Would you like it to be thicker?" It was fourteen months of going backwards and forwards with about I built an audience of about fifteen thousand women on Facebook. We just used this constant play and feedback and sensory touch and smell. You know, in the end, it wasn't even me designing the range. It was my following. It was it was these people who were all intrinsically wanting to love themselves naturally, their hair, their skin. And you want to use a product or a service that, that recognizes that feeling, that feeling of I really like my hair as it is naturally, and I'm not going to change it for anyone. And there's a power to that. It really yeah. is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with uh, news emerging of uh, all these toxic uh, cancer-causing products in uh, in hair care, particularly aimed at uh, black women, women of color, it's uh, super important that we have that feeling of I'm not compromising on, you know, my hair and changing it for any reason. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that the rise of clean beauty and clean beauty is really about you know, caring and it's about transparency and it's about um, it's about really just being able to to reflect the consumer in your product. Clean beauty is probably the biggest trend globally right now. Mm-hmm. And you know it's 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 about way more than health. And it's it plugs into so many of the touch points that you find consumers are are reacting to. I, I think that um, that we're in the right space. I think we're well positioned. I think uh, you know sub-Saharan Africa is completely in touch with what's going on globally in terms of hair and beauty trends. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how big the industry grows because right now personal care products. Are only um, uh, uh, exceeded in sales by food. Oh, really? You know? Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. a substantial yeah. chunk yeah. of the market. <laughs> there's, a, there's a real investment in, in South African consumers in terms of how much care we take care of ourselves and whether or not you flip the product over to read the label. And have you bothered to figure out what a sulfate is and why it's bad for your hair or why when you use soap, you get a dry, itchy feeling afterwards and, and why um, vegan quality products actually do matter so you can pay a bit more for them and feel good about it. So I think I think we've got such a sussed consumer here that no matter how much we're facing from a socioeconomic perspective, the landscape is tough to trade in. Shoppers are out there still putting their money down so long as they can feel, as far as I'm concerned, I think there's a lot of connection that shoppers mm-hmm. feel brands and, and, and ethos is right now that make you feel positive. Yeah. And what do you think uh, your customers like about your brand? Is it Ooh, the actual ingredients in there? I mean, what, what do they love about your brand? You know, I think if you if you tune into the layers of the onion that is the perfect hair, for example, um, I built that brand over about six years and over that six years, I was very much at the forefront of the brand. And I think people saw my hair and and, and saw me advocating for curls and coils and afros and all kinds of textures. And 
I think because we used such a great amount of trial and error based on the people who were engaged with the brand, there was a trust factor that we were building there subconsciously by putting by putting the consumer first and at the center of the story um, and seeing my face going, if I can use this, you can too, because I'm just like you and I made it for me and it's good for you too. There was a lot of relatability and connectivity and personalization that we didn't even do deliberately. It just kind of evolved. Mm. And I think that there's a certain amount of trust that comes with uh, that type of personalization. And I, I would like to think uh, that that the product speaks for itself, that, that, that when you use it, it will do what it says it's going to do. And, you know, and there's enough of a connection and trust to the brand for you to go, okay, well, I'm going to invest a bit more. I'll, I'll, I'll jump to another store in the hope to find it. The connectivity and the personalized approach to retail that doesn't make you feel like a number, a statistic, a shopper, you know. Yep. There's, there's an authenticity to the interaction. And I have a family of ambassadors, um, about 150 women sitting on our database, women and men, who are active advocates. There is no money changed, changing hands. My ambassadors are part of a family of communicators. I call them prosumers. Mm. They are consumers who produce content that's unsolicited. I don't edit it. I don't ask for it. It's a relationship based on, would you like to try something new? If you like it, you can tell your followers what you think about it. And it's based on trust. It's based on mutual respect. There's no contract law in place. There's no money changing hands. And I think that family of ambassadors have replaced me as being a voice for the brand. I don't have to say anything. Mm, um, mm. They say it for me based on their experiences, whether they like it, hate it, want to change it, want to buy more. And I think that was our second step was saying, you know, the brand's not just about uh, Coles by Taryn. It's about this growing ethos of learning to love your beauty naturally and plugging into products and brands that celebrate that with you. I know this uh, this emerged uh, very organically, but it seems to be a successful strategy to have, you know, something of a cult following, so to speak, (laughs) as part of your strategy um, for growing the brand. Well, I, I think, like I said, it started out quite subconsciously. I didn't even realize I was doing it in the beginning, but because I'd worked on, on several different brands growing up in a marketing and and media space, I was doing what came naturally, which was trying to connect and trying to build relationships. And, you know, I mean, just to give you an example, in the first year, I answered every call, every email, I I handfilled every pack, I wrote specialized, personalized notes to every shopper who came into the store or who bought something online, they always had some kind of imprint that said, you matter to us and we want to make you happy and we want to celebrate your natural hair with you. Mm. And um, I think that once we realized we'd done it so much and there were so many layers of that onion and that it was working, that I just realized that no matter which brand I'm building, it's always going to have the same foundation of trust because I'm always going to want her to feel that I'm close to her and I want her to be happy with the product and I want her to know that I celebrate her too. So you mentioned being the face of uh, the perfect hair at the beginning. Of course, you've got this big afro, <laughs> which uh, is big. 
did you go into this business because of a problem you were trying to solve for yourself? You know, why hair? Why couldn't it be, I don't know, skincare, shoes, whatever? It was just so, again, absolutely organic how I landed in the hair care space. I, I had uh, had my son, Charlie, who's now 14, and realizing that uh, together my husband and I now had four kids. And this was my last shot at really being a hands-on mum. Um, I resigned my big job in corporate media and started my own little agency called The Perfect Score, which was all about marketing campaigns aimed at the female consumer. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, 2014, I got employed to launch a salon, a black hair care salon in, in the city, in Joburg City, in Commissioner Street. And there I got my first taste of real, real American hair care brands like we Dad, uh, Mixed mm. Chicks, uh, uh, As I Am Naturally, Carol's Daughter. And I thought to myself, why on earth is there nothing like this on the shelf in South Africa? Right. Why, why, why are we as the producers of all of that raw material not producing these things here in South Africa for the majority of the population who has that hair in the first place? Mm. Why are we supposed to use a salon product that costs three times more than what you're willing to pay for it and have to mix it with coconut oil to get it right for your hair. You know, mm. um, it was just a case of seeing a gap in the market uh, before, you know, the market was really uh, trading as competitively as it is now. And thankfully for me, we we caught the wave early enough to be able to keep riding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I have had this hair all my life. Um, <laughs> this was the hair that got me bullied and teased in school. This was the hair that would not oh, sit dear. down. Yeah. Oh, it was just, I, I insisted on this big afro and um, it became a bit of a signature trademark for me, especially in high school where, you know, the the standard of beauty was to iron your hair as straight as possible and defy humidity. You couldn't swim. You couldn't be out in the rain, um, you know, and I just couldn't understand it. I wanted my hair big and fluffy and curly, uh, and it just wasn't cool back then. So mm. it, it also was me reacting personally to something that had been very dear to me. You know, my, my need to have my hair natural was with me from a very young age and inspired by my mother, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, who, yeah she was quite a pioneer. Mm. And she wore her hair in a big red afro from I, I was I was a little girl. And, I you know, I've got pictures of her in a very similar to hairstyle to mine now. And that was just, it was so personal for me. You know, it was so, it's so, I thought to myself, if I can feel this good about a product that's helping me feel even better about myself um, and where I can look in the mirror and feel proud and and not, you know, um, not reluctant Mm. to be myself Mm. naturally, then maybe other consumers will feel the same. Yeah. So you've always had a little bit of a rebellion spirit. <laughs> I don't know, but sometimes it just felt like plain old stupidity. Like, couldn't I just iron my hair and get it over with, you know? There's a saying, it, it goes something like this. You have to dare to be yourself, however strange or weird that may prove to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's something in that, that that really does resonate with me is that even on the days when when you don't feel you have the strength to really pull it out and 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 and, and really take it to the next level and just to be able to be authentically you 
and say what you mean and have the ability to, or the strength or the resilience to the bravery sometimes that it takes to just be you in a marketplace that's so saturated. It's sometimes brave uh, and sometimes silly, but, you know, I just keep pushing through. I think I'm still standing. Look, it's been, I've been trading in, in this, in this industry for since 2014. Mm, And mm. I'm proud to say that we've pivoted and and changed the business, but it's always going to have to be about being true to ourselves, being true to the brand ethos. This is Shades and Layers, and my guest today is Taryn Gill, founder of hair care brands such as The Perfect Hair, Curls and Bloomins of Sister. In the next part of our conversation, we find out how her journey into natural hair care started, how she's toying with the idea of venturing into skincare, as well as all the accolades she's received for her work and what they have meant to her personally and to her business. I I had a bit of savings when I left corporate Mm -hmm. Um, and it was fully funded by just myself and my husband. We, we searched for a long time for an investor, but we were always just falling short of the criteria. I'm so glad that, Mm. that, that having pivoted coming from where we started as self-funding, lots of risk, lots of sleepless nights, lots of anxiety about whether or not the risks we were taking were going to be worthwhile to now being able to sit back and say, okay, I'm not going to own the supply chain, but I'm going to own the part of the design process that I'm best at. So I'm going to build the brand. I'm going to develop and create uh, the range in terms of when I say it's going to do X, it's going to do X. And I can take it to markets and give shoppers, you know, the the feeling that this is made for you. Mm. And that I'm good at, and and I'm I'm just privileged now that I get to work on a few brands for a few clients where I can deliver that service because um, it's that agility I think yep. that makes entrepreneurs yep. in in context taking of everything you've learned and applying it to and the business it. and serving uh, other people. And it's that you know it's that agility. I, I think entrepreneurs have learned that you know if you're not agile and you can't shift and change and get creative with your offering, it's very hard to survive out there. Absolutely. What about the uh, formulating part? Do you work with a lab? You know, how, oh, how yes. do you, yeah. Uh, it's it's not easy. Like I said, the, the development of the perfect hair, which was my first range, I was very, very, very blessed and lucky to have met salon stylists who were in touch with trichologists who were also in touch with the research and masters and honors students at the UCT Institute for Hair and Skin. So I, who then also introduced me to a team of biochemists. So it was a complete team effort where I had to go in and learn how the biochemists were doing what they were doing, um, why they would shop for certain ingredients, how to test for efficacy, how to basically put together the formulas that we could then take to market and play with and, and get the feedback needed. Uh, so mm. it really was mm. a, a team of, of scientists and chemists and students who were willing to open their books and share their, their, their master's theses with me on, on hair in the African context, African textures, which ingredients have been notorious for working well, which ingredients were notorious for damage for African women's hair, um, and learning about it the way they had learned. I mean, I'm obviously no scientist and I'm no biochemist, mm-hmm. but to be able to read their work 
and talk to them about how they do it was a huge learning step for me in terms of this is how you do the first phase in order to get to the second phase so that by the time a cream arrives on my desk to be tested, I know what it took to make that cream and why it was designed like that. So yep. I learned how to brief in, you know, mm-hmm, I learned how mm-hmm. to brief into a team what I wanted the product to do, what uh, uh, what active ingredients I was looking at, what type of call-outs I wanted to make, how I wanted it to smell and feel, and what I wanted the consumer to experience at the end. And when you've got, I always say my biochemist is my work husband. He's the closest <laughs> to outside of my home husband and and he he is just you know he has a he and his team are phenomenal in translating my brief into very real product and over the years we've worked so closely together we just get we, we get each other completely and it's that type of work relationship that i value immensely mm. makes makes life a joy mm. and which ingredients have become your favorites uh, over the years well there's an ingredient, you know, in the in the original range, there were there were active ingredients that I was the only person in South Africa using them in personal care. Things like Kalahari melon seed oils and Mongongo oils, you know, we were we were using them back in 2014 before anybody knew what they were. Mm. And now my favorite active ingredient now is the basil root extract in our grow on the go range. And grapeseed oil is the, you know, our our market loves coconut and pasta and shea butters, you know, and they are incredible. That and glycerin is a, is a, is a winning formula for an African texture in an African climate. We all know that. But the, there's a the, the secret oil that is a personal favorite of mine is grapeseed, actually. Oh, yeah. It has incredible benefits for for hair and skin in the African context, it's just, yeah, that one doesn't get enough praise like the others. But mm, yes, mm. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of sexy stuff out there. Mm. Um, I'm busy playing with a, with a formula for a body wash. And um, there is such, uh, such incredible, incredible leaps and bounds in the skincare space. It's awesome to watch. I mean, have you seen the rise of of skin of local skincare manufacturers? Yeah, I mean, it's just wow. uh, booming. Yeah. It is booming, you know. Natural hair is booming, but skincare is just as just as interesting. What do you Especially think happened? I don't know. Where where did this boom come from? Um, how did we suddenly get so interested in 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 in? I mean, everybody suddenly knows what hyaluronic acid is. <laughs> And I can't go to sleep without my vitamin C serum that smells like oranges. It's like, yeah, we're addicted. Um, in the same way, I think that five years ago, women became addicted to to hair care. We started to hoard it and try every new one that came on the market. And I think skincare is seeing a similar boom, which is so fantastic for the entrepreneurs, the the black female-led businesses who are really shaking things up. Mm. I couldn't be more proud. I mean. I'd, I would love to go throw my hat in that ring. Yeah. Do you think it's inevitable that, uh, you know, when you start in one aspect of the beauty industry, you'll always end up venturing into the other aspects? I think it's tempting. Um, from, from, from what I can understand, it's a very, very saturated and competitive market, just as like hair is, but maybe more so. And from what I can understand, it it doesn't, you know, jumping into a market that has very dominant world leaders, big brands, you know, big brand behavior, 
it can be dangerous and, and expensive if you get it wrong. That's what I've been cautioned against. But at the same time, you're seeing the rise of these young black female-led brands um, that are making beautiful skincare. I, I don't use a single import imported product on my skin. Everything that I'm using now is being made by other female entrepreneurs like me. And they are showing that they have appetite for risk, that they can go out and compete and that they can educate women like me on why you don't use soap or why you don't use a face wash off the shelf and why certain ingredients are the ones you must be looking for. And I think they're doing a scintillating job on shifting how we spend. Mm, mm. Isn't that amazing? I'm actually glad you mentioned that because there's a political aspect to it, right? So there's okay. the whole thing of inclusivity. So how do you become inclusive if you don't have representation, you know, in the boardrooms that are making the decisions about products that are aimed at people who don't look like you. And then there's also just a, a general movement, I think, people being more aware, being more engaged and actually mm -hmm. demanding uh -huh. to get what they pay for. And not just because your name is so and so, then I'm going to buy it. I mean, how do you incorporate this type of thinking or philosophy or capture this mood in uh, your business practices, for example? I think you have to. I, I think for a brand like mine, for a local skincare brand, very competing in very similar environments and challenges, uh, hair and skin, you know, a very similar audience. We have to say the same things. We have to do the same things. When, when, you, when, you, when you really look at, at what we are selling, you know, we're saying it's okay to be emotional about your hair and your skin. We're saying it's okay for this process to be exactly about you. Mm. And, and it's okay to, for, 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 for you to feel that you can trust me over a, a, an international brand because you can, because, because you know that I know what the issues are with your skin, how you feel about your hair, the childhood traumas, joys and tribulations that came with your journey into natural hair. I've been there. I've done that. I know exactly what you mean. And it's that tone, it's that authentic uh, form of manufacturing, it's that product messaging that's enabling us to compete with giants mm -hmm. and, and, and we're surviving and a lot of us uh, are thriving. Well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm exactly thriving right now. <laughs> it's complicated times. <laughs> complicated times. But um, I think so many of these businesses are. You know, I, I always look at a, a company like Switch Beauty, the owner of whom just won, I think, the Forbes uh, 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 Woman of the Year, or I can't remember the accolade, um, but she's under 30, mm -hmm. and she's she's built a thriving beauty business um, just off of understanding what a young teenage girl wants out of her makeup. Amazing. And, and to, just to be able to say, I'm just like you. I know what you want and it's okay. I'm going to give it to you. Mm, um, mm -hmm. that, that type of emotional honesty and connection, very, very hard, almost impossible for conglomerates and big global giants to imitate. It's mass production for them. Yeah, It's mass production for them and it comes across. And the consumer is simply inundated with offerings and social media messaging. And we are finding it harder and harder to quieten our minds and to to just feel calmer about the world, especially in our South African context right now. And to have a product that you can connect with and feel good about, that's something. 
And that's what we sell. So you mentioned accolades. What's the most meaningful accolade you received for your work? Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, that's a good question. I can't tell you how much it means when you work alone outside of big teams um, to be able to receive an accolade uh, that, that acknowledges the quality of the work that you've put out. It's incredibly motivating to keep going and it's, you know, you use it as inspiration. There were a couple of moments. I think the first moment was um, uh, being asked to go on that reality TV show called Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. That was, um, I, I did I, I did fairly well on the program. Um, and that was a huge accolade for me in the sense that I got so much publicity from it. Um, I'd walk into a store and they'd say, oh, you're the girl from Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And um, that was that was a big up for me because I got millions of rands worth of PR on on, on television that mm. a business of mine would just never have been able to afford. And then after that, I I, I won a uh, the L award for the best co wash, and I thought, wow, I, I had won it against big brands like L'Oreal, and and um, I thought, wow, a little South African brand can be acknowledged by a panelist of beauty uh, judges as you know as being the best that that was that was in the market at the time That's and that amazing. was yeah that was a big shout out to to what we had created in the original perfect hair range um but yeah there's there's been so many great moments where i've stopped and i've thought geez you know maybe we are doing something right here yeah You're listening to Shades and Layers, and up next, we will hear Taryn's backstory. She talks about some fond childhood memories, South Africa's post-1994 euphoria, and also what she was doing at that time. She also talks about the mentors she's found along the way, motherly love, and wisdom that she lives by. You'll also find out how the second part of this episode's title came about. Who is or what is the beast? Can you mention... Your top three memories from childhood. Oh, my word. Uh, you know, dancing on my father's feet in one of their nightclubs with my, 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 my mother had just cut my hair into the same shape, Bob, that she had. And, um, we, you know, we'd come back from the salon all curled and afroed up and, and my father pulled me onto the dance floor and I was dancing on his feet. That was such a beautiful memory for me. The music, the setting, dancing with my mum and dad, her and I sporting the same hairstyle, you know, it was this, this beautiful music playing in the background and it must have been about 1980, Aww. 1981. And um, that was a beautiful memory for me of family, of loving myself, of loving everything that was just in that moment. And yeah, that was a stunning memory for me. When I got into university, that was the second big, big moment in my life where I thought, because I think I was only the second person in my family to go. Um, and getting into university was a was a beautiful memory. Wow, yeah. I was strutting around the campus. It was 1993. And, you know, the campuses had just opened to, to students of color. You know, we were like pioneers. We were like, you know, I think we only, as as brown skin students, we were probably less than five percent of the student population yep. at the time. It was nineteen ninety three, after all, yes. and that was a great feeling. You know, that you were a pioneer, that we were leading the way, that we had suddenly this access to this new learning. That was incredibly exciting. Mm, mm. Yeah, pre ninety four elections. It's a very euphoric time. 
very euphoric times and the campuses had just opened up so we really did feel on top of the world yep. yeah how old are you i'm the same age as you oh, okay. <laughs> so well, was it uh, was that roads at the time aha uh-huh. <laughs> i would have died to go to roads oh i was just lucky to get into und you know as a durbanite we we thought we were just so blessed to go that far you know none of us mm. had thought about going to you know, going out of town and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, I've I've heard only good t- tales coming out of roads at that time. And the last one, probably the birth of my children. Um, well, what you said, childhood. Uh, here we go back. <laughs> That's good too. <laughs> you were young enough. <laughs> I was, yeah, look, I was twenty-five when I had my first daughter. I really was a child mm. in in more ways than mm. one. You know. Um, but I I think yeah, a, a really positive memory that helped form me was 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 learning to take care of something other than myself. You know, mm. I think motherhood teaches you the selfless love that it's very hard to describe. It just, it, it's a, it's a feeling that owns you. And I don't think it ever really lets you go. Yeah. They teach yeah. you. They teach you. They teach you. That's for sure. Yeah. My, my daughter's very, very much um, vocal about, you know, dysmorphia, how girls um, really need to learn to love themselves naturally and how eating disorders and, and, and body disorders are so real for the generations that are coming up. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see the body positivity that's starting to infiltrate the media, you know, showing girls, it's okay to just be you. Yeah. It's okay to love yourself naturally. Mm. Um, and I think that's exceptional that that finally is getting out. And, and that's why I think the rise of clean beauty and the rise of natural hair and skin products will just keep going I don't think it will slow down anytime soon. No, not at all. I mean, there's a hunger for real, for the real, something real and also connection. Absolutely. And I, I, if, if there's one thing I've built my brands on is just connect. Yeah. Yeah. So are you an only child or do you have siblings? I have siblings. Uh, my sister is older than me. She's eight years my senior. And um, most of my family, well, all my family are in Durban. And um, yeah, so I'm a very proud Durbanite, small family, but very connected and very close. And yeah, you know, looking to explore our opportunities as a family business as well. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, what's the wisest advice you have received and that you still continue to live by today? You know, I I think the most... um, pertinent question I've been asked, you know, while I was building this brand was, why does it matter? Um, my, my Instagram friend, Neo, who runs her own marketing agency, she taught me that. She said, you know, before you build a brand, before you start your journey into creating a new product by Curls by Taryn, ask yourself, why does it matter? Mm. And, and I think that is such a, a pertinent launching platform to understand that what what you're making, why would it matter to someone? Mm. You know, and the answer to that will guide you for years and years to come. That is such good advice. I stole that one from Dineo. <laughs> <laughs> Go Dineo. <laughs> and then mentors, you know, so many young people want to get into business. Where can they find their guides? Where did you find them? The most obvious mentors have been my parents. Mm. Um they were world-class entrepreneurs back in the day when nobody really used mm, that word. Mm. They 
were pioneers. They built nightclubs and businesses at a time when apartheid threw every obstacle in their way. They they were resilient. They were the hardest working people I had ever seen. Mm. Um, there was just such a work ethic and a consistency and and a performance that that I that to me growing up it was unparalleled. I I hadn't seen anything like the force of my mother and my father. Mm. Um, we, we would all be feeling like we were standing still in comparison. And I was lucky enough to come through a media space in that post-95, 94, 95 era where I worked for great media minds like um, Justice Malala and Giselle Vertime Ames. Mm. And I did a stint in travel where I worked for Dawn Robertson. Um, I've, I've, I've worked wow. for very good of mine as well. Um, I, I've worked for UN Women under Pumzile. And, you know, wow. I've, I've, worked, <laughs> yeah, I've worked for class acts, hey, women who, women who inspire you to get up early and work late and push yourself into territories where you didn't even think you could go. Yeah, And it was a combination of coming from a family like that and just being lucky enough. My first job, um, I, I worked as the literally the, the right hand to one of the best publishers in the country named Margaret Vassafal, who published Garden and Home magazine for hundreds and hundreds of wow, years. Yeah. And she was the greatest mind in publishing for decades. Mm-hmm. Jane, Raffaele, Jane Raffaele, great, yeah, exactly. The greatest publishing mind in decades. And, you know, I was just really, really blessed to be able to work closely with really phenomenal, hardworking people who just show you what consistency really does mean, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they were, they were pivotal really in, in, in how I kind of shaped my career along the way. And then finally trying to translate that skill into the business and yeah, the business is a very different entity now, but I'm very glad about that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had to write a memoir, what would it be called and why? <laughs> I should have known you were going to ask me this. I should have prepared. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I think I'd call it beast. Mm-hmm. Just because I'm in a line of work where this thing that I'm dealing with is is hair, natural hair. Yeah. And even natural skin has the similar issues where it's a social, economical, political, cultural beast. It often has so little to do with the cream that's sitting on the shelf. It's the social implications of how you wear your hair as a black woman in society. It's the emotional implications of maybe being teased about it or or praised about it that makes you feel good. It's the political implications of when you walk into a, a conservative boardroom in a wig or in an afro or a braid or a protective style that isn't deemed uh, respectable for a workplace. You know, our, our hair is politicized in, in so many ways. Our hair is pleased, so to speak. We can't wear swimming caps without some regulatory body at the Olympics yep. saying, you know, we are, the, we are the only people on the nation who take chemicals that burn massive holes in our scalp um, in order to straighten it, to conform to a standard that somebody else has set for you. You know, you're not enjoying the process at all. No, nope. but you're there's nothing <laughs> fun about that. There's nothing fun about that process. And and often women over the years have done it to their children. 
And that's a beast. That is a mindset, that that space in your mind that makes you do that. That's a beast to tackle and mm. to tackle it with a product. You know, <laughs> that's a challenge uh, to, to translate what she's thinking and feeling on all those socioeconomic, cultural, psychological levels. Um, it is a beast. Good one. Yeah. So I think that's it from me. Is there anything else that you'd like to say uh, that you feel we might have left out? No, I think I've said it all. Sorry, I spoke too much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's perfect. I love this. <laughs> thank you, Taryn, for sharing your story. That was really, really amazing. And thank you for listening to this episode of Shades and Layers. You can follow Taryn on her social handle at Curls by Taryn, one word, and also go to the website theperfecthair.co.za. You will find links to all the special mentions in the show notes. And if you liked this episode, please do share it and remember to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. So until next time, please do take good care.